episode 49 of Rising Tide. This is still your host, David Helvarga. My co-host is still Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. So today we're happy and honored to be speaking with our old friend, Maria Brown, superintendent of the Greater Farallands National Marine Sanctuary. Hers is one of 15 national marine sanctuaries around the U.S. This one in the cold waters off San Francisco includes the Farallon Islands that have been called California's Galapagos, because of their abundant wildlife, including seabirds, seals, and sharks. Since her taking over 20 years ago, the sanctuary has tripled in size, in part as a way to keep oil drilling out of these North Pacific seas. And under her tenure, there's also been increased survival of seal pups, fewer vessel strikes on whales, and less harassment of white sharks. Uh, but Maria, before all that, you were studying California's other top predator, the mountain lion. So tell us about your background and how mountain lions led you to the sea. <laughs> yeah, well, I love animals. That's where it all started. Um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of California, Berkeley, and studied wildlife management. And my focus was mountain lions. I love those charismatic predators. And while I was studying wildlife management, saw a job announcement at the California Coastal Commission. Uh, it was an internship for graduate students, but I was an undergraduate, thought I'd apply anyway. And lo and behold, I got it. And that's what got me into the, the coastal realm. Mm -hmm. And were you a raised a California kid? I am. I am born and raised Californian and quite proud of it. Well, you've been doing a great job. Um, and as we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary is and what that relationship to NOAA is all about? Great. Yeah, um, the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary is a marine protected area. Um, it's an area of the ocean that has special protections. And under the federal government, NOAA, a marine protected area is uh, widely defined uh, as an area in which you can have maritime heritage resources protected, such as the very first National Marine Sanctuary, Monitor, which is an old ironclad ship that had sunk, uh, to having biologically diverse areas, such as the Greater Farallons. Uh, the goal of the National Marine Sanctuaries Act is to protect these very significant national resources for present and future generations. So, and, and what about the Farallons? What's really unique about them? Well, the Farallons, other than being extremely close to my heart, are one of the most biologically productive areas in the world. Uh, we happen to be in the most productive uh, upwelling zone in the world, according to Dr. Jean Lergere, uh, in which the deep cold water gets upwelled with its nutrients to the near shore. And during the sunny months of um, August, September, October, there's these amazing plankton blooms, which feed wildlife from around the world. That's why it's so diverse and productive in this area. We have sea turtles that come from Indonesia to munch on jellyfish. Uh, we have shearwaters, sooty shearwaters, a shorebird, uh, not a shorebird, a seabird that comes from New Zealand to our waters to feed. Um, blue whales from off Costa Rica come to eat the krill. Humpback whales from uh, Mexico, Hawaii, and um, Central America also come here to feast. Uh, it's, we have 36 marine mammals that come to the sanctuaries to feed, which attract other 
very famous megafauna, such as the white shark. Um, we have one of the largest adult um, populations of white sharks in the world that's drawn uh, to the sanctuary um, for the elephant seal populations. And, and um, they like dead whales. So when the whales die, they also feed off the dead whales. And then um, we also are an amazing place for seabirds. Uh, we have the largest concentration of breeding seabirds in the contiguous United States. So those little rock cropping islands that are called Farallons uh, host um, you know, half a million uh, breeding birds on those little islands. And why are they here? Because there's so much food in the ocean for them to eat. And when I took my trip out to the uh, Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, I was so impressed with the fragrance. Um, and so we had a lot of people with us um, who were not so happy with the waves getting there, but it was amazing and abundant. And yes, you can smell them, you can see them. It was just really magical. It's one of my favorite ocean trips ever. Yeah, you got to experience Ode de Farallons. <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> um, Cordell Bank is tucked right in between the Gulf of the Farallons, and that's another National Marine Sanctuary. Can you tell us how that fits in and what your role is with Cordell Bank? Yes. Well, just recently, this um, past January 2021, uh, I was uh, assigned to be the superintendent of Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. So now I manage both of them. Congratulations. Uh, uh, well, thank you. Because the two sanctuaries are so close and really share the same ecosystem, it, it made sense to combine the management, although they are two separate sanctuaries still. And Cordell Banks is a shallow underwater reef. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just about to describe it. Uh, Cordell Bank is a uh, offshore bank or seamount. You can think of it as a submerged mountain that comes to within 150 feet of the ocean surface. And on the submerged mountain, because it comes up from you know the deep water up to fairly shallow water, and um, that gets the light um, gets to penetrate through the ocean, it is an amazing um, environment in which um, the plankton can bloom, there's tons of krill, and this um, seamount is covered every single inch upon inch with life. It can rival any coral reef anywhere in the world in terms of color, diversity uh, of species. And then above the bank, because there's so much life, it is full of fish. It is just a, it's a amazing fishbowl uh, and where divers that like to dive technically could go and, and be surrounded by schools of fish and view cold water coral, corals and sponges uh, and invertebrates along the seamount. So when I was writing my book, The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea, I got to spend a few nights with the scientists who are the only folks who are actually on the islands and the stink and the, the abundance of animals shuffling your feet to get through the nests and uh, the noise, the incredible noise. It, it all reminded me of a science station I'd, I'd spent time in Antarctica. Um, you know, there were 100,000 birds and 10,000 pinnipeds and seals and sea lions and elephant seals, pretty much ignoring the humans that were just not in their realm of interest. And um, it reminded me of Antarctica, except it's a wilderness 27 miles from San Francisco. At night, you can see the lights, and it's got a San Francisco zip code. Um, 
what is so it's convenient for the scientists. What are they studying? What is the science of the Farallones and and both on on the islands and in the water? Uh, there's a lot of different types of research that goes on uh, within the sanctuary and on the islands, which are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, on the water, that's my area of expertise. We are looking at. Um, whales in particular. We have an offshore uh, research program which records uh, marine mammals, whales, uh, where they're feeding. We look at what's in the water, what they're eating. We're also recording the seabirds that come uh, to the Farallons and what they're eating in the water and how well uh, they're doing. We collect water samples to see uh, is, the, is the water clean? Um, are there pollutants that we should be concerned about? Uh, we also do offshore uh, ROV, remotely operated vehicle um, uh, cruises, in which we take uh, large ROVs with cameras on them and collecting arms, and we uh, they dive deep into the ocean. They can dive up to thousands of feet. We've gone into the uh, Rena Canyon um, at 3,000 feet and looked at uh, deep sea fish, and other life forms to see what lives there and have found coral forests that live that are living right off our shore uh, we had no idea that these coral forests were here before and every single time we go down we are discovering a new species uh, it's an area that just hasn't been explored murray when you talk about a coral forest can you describe that like how tall is it are there colors are they packed together what's the visuals of that yeah, we have multiple different types of coral forests. The most striking are the ones um, in which we have black corals, which actually they're not black. Um, the black coral that uh, we found uh, west of the Farallon Islands, it was over a hundred years old and it was orange. And within the coral, you'll see fish um, living within the coral and they're, and they're large. They're, they're, I think this coral was six feet tall. And we also have giant sponges that'll be white and yellow. Uh, one in particular that's really interesting is the glass coral um, because they, um, they form and it's like glass and they've used the structure of these glass corals to develop fiber optic cables. Um, because of the, the unique structure of how they're built. So they literally take silicate out of the ocean. <laughs> to, to help grow. Yeah, they filter. Both the corals and the sponges filter the water to get their food, and that's how they grow. And they're actually animals. They're, they're living organisms um, that are down there that are, that are colonies. Um, and like I said, um, up to hundreds of years old. And some areas are dense. In other areas, um, we have uh, this, uh, it's a Farallon's coral, and it's just one, one I want to say stipe, but that's the wrong word, but it's just a one little, like it looks like a stick. There'll be all these little sticks in the ocean, and so we have those type of coral forests as well. And what depths are you talking about? Uh, we have coral from the subtitle out to um, the deep sea into these deep canyons that we have offshore. So it can be, you know, in a hundred feet to thousands. You know, I've, I've been down, I think it was 3,000 feet um, in which I was uh, up as part of a cruise and we were recording coral forests. You know, the sanctuary does not restrict fishing or trawling. Are there any protections to keep these uh, coral forests safe? 
That's a great question. Um, the sanctuary program works within NOAA with the National Marine uh, Fisheries Service and their uh, fisheries management councils. Uh, within the Greater Fairlands, we've worked with the P Pacific Fisheries Management Council uh, and have, through our research, provided data to the Fisheries Management Council on where these coral forests are and have worked with uh, the Fisheries Management Councils to have them designated as um, essential fish habitat. Because the fish live, as, as we witnessed within the, uh, the, the black coral, they live within the coral and they use it as habitat, either to feed in these areas or for protection. Uh, so it's essential areas for very important commercial fisheries um, uh, fish to be able to have these safe havens. So these areas have been designated as um, essential fish habitat, which then add uh, additional protections, such as no trawling in these areas to help preserve them. Now, there are other human impacts beyond fishing. There was a major oil spill right in the sanctuary and then back in the 1980s. And even earlier in the 50s and 60s, right into the 70s, a lot of those deep waters were filled up with tens of thousands of barrels of nuclear and toxic waste and the Navy even dumped an aircraft carrier down there. So I imagine you've seen the videos and, and the conclusion is, is to leave things in place. What's, what's the latest science on that? Yes, unfortunately, this area, because we are located in a major metropolitan area with um, some of the largest um, ports in the country and we have oil refineries and we use a lot of oil and we drive cars. Um, we have had uh, multiple significant oil spills in the sanctuary. When I first started working my first 10 years, I worked on an oil spill every other year. Um, so it's, it is an unfortunate thing that we have um, had to experience here. We also have had radioactive waste from developing the atomic bombs for World War II. That waste um, was disposed of in the sanctuary. We have um, 10,000 55-gallon drums were disposed in the sanctuary and just thrown off the backs of ships. So there isn't any one location um, where they're located. We have worked on multiple occasions to look for and study uh, the barrels as well as uh, the U.S. Independence, which was scuttled in the sanctuary. Um, the USS Independence was uh, was used uh, to bomb at the Bikini Atolls to, to practice using the, the nuclear bombs that we were developing. And then they brought it back here to study it and dump it in the sanctuary. So we've, we've worked with um, the U.S. Um, Geological Society, USGS. We've worked with UC um, Berkeley, um, Lawrence Livermore Labs, uh, to st as well as with the military to study um, these areas because we're very concerned. Uh, is there radioactive waste in the sanctuary? Uh, is it affecting the fish, the wildlife? Fortunately, most of the information we found, well, actually all of the information we found to date hasn't detected any um, radioactive levels above uh, normal background levels in the ocean. Um, one thing, salt water is very good at buffering uh, radioactive material, so it keeps it very contained. Uh, also, the material that were in the drums were encased in concrete, which is also very good at keeping the material um, confined. And um, just, it, it's fairly recent. Within the last, uh, oh, 
I, I wish I knew my dates better, but it's all blur with COVID. Uh, within the last five to 10 years, we've gone out with Lawrence Livermore Lab to take samples. We took samples of the USS Independence. Again, we couldn't find any radioactive um, uh, levels that were causing concern, which is very positive. So, so what's this uh, aircraft carrier look like when you look at the ROV footage? Uh, the aircraft, looking at the USS Independence on the ROV footage is amazing. And anyone can go look at it. It is available online on the internet. Um, there, uh, there's a YouTube channel. It's through the Nautilus. Um, uh, Dr. Bob Ballard, who discovered the Titanic, has taken his ship out there with us. And the water is very clear. It's, it's at depth and it's very clear. And you can still see airplanes inside the ship in their hangars. Um, so we have video of where you can see the airplanes. There are some amazing sponges and um, urchins, the big white plume urchins growing on the, on the vessel, on the USS Independence. And um, there we have seen, we have discovered a new sponge species actually living on the, the USS Independence. So a successful landing. <laughs> we 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 it, we have a successful ROV footage of of the vessel. Highly recommend checking it out. It'll feel like you're really there. You did have a at a much more shallow depth. You had a ship that was leaking for years, and you actually did some innovative technical work to get the oil out of that ship. Want to tell us about that? Yes, the um, the uh, Jacob Luckenbach uh, had. Um, hit its sister ship in the fog offshore in the 50s and sunk. Uh, we have a beach watch program in which um, the public can be trained and become um, community science volunteers and they monitor our beaches and they collect, they're trained to collect oil samples as evidence as well as oil birds as well, and um, be able and record the marine life that's living along our coast. They're amazing, our Beach Watch volunteers. They're our eyes and ears of the sanctuary. Uh, a few years back, actually many years back, our volunteers collected oil samples. We had an oil event. We didn't had no idea where it was coming from. There were no ships that had sunk. There were, there, were, there were no accidents that we knew of. And we were able to take those oil samples and have them fingerprinted in the oil labs um, with the state and found out the oil matched that of the Jacob Luckenbach, which sunk in the 1950s. Uh, we went out and um, identified where that vessel was and through using an ROV, um, was able to look at the ship, see where the oil was leaking and bring a dive crew um, out to the Luckenbach. They lived on a barge and they took a dive bell down to depth and were able to uh, lighter the oil. So they were able to take the oil out of the tanks that were accessible and suck that oil up to the barge and remove it from the Luckenbach. And ever since then, we have seen a, a decrease in oil on our beaches. Every time there was a storm um, from a certain direction, it would the currents would move the vessel and then the vessel would burp oil, which would then end up on our shores and unfortunately on our birds as well. And so this hose went a couple hundred feet down to the ship and just cleaned out its uh, reserves? 
Yep, suck the oil up out of the tanks. So we got as much oil as we possibly could. Uh, we think there still is some oil left um, in some tanks that are buried um, uh, in, the, in the seafloor um, that weren't accessible. And fortunately, that oil, uh, we haven't seen any of it on the beach, but we do continue to monitor and fingerprint um, any tar balls or little oil patties that we may find on the shore. Tell us. Do you get tired of hearing about white sharks and having books and articles written about the Farallones that just focus on the big fin fellows and gals? I never get tired of anything about the Farallones uh, and their wildlife. It is truly an amazing place. And I have to say, I love the white shark. I've been, again, incredibly fortunate to be able to see them in the sanctuary. And those females, they are the biggest. And they're so magnificent. That the first time I, I saw um, a large adult female white shark uh, when it swam by, uh, I, I was very fortunate. I was with a research crew and I had my sunglasses on because my eyes just teared up. It was... It's an incredible creature and just the width of a fish that's that wide swimming so graceful. Give us a sense of feet. Oh my gosh. So the largest white sharks are the size of a school bus. Ooh. So can you imagine a school bus swimming by oh. uh, and just so gracefully in the water? Um, it's an amazing sight to see. It, it, it really is. We think of whales that big, but we really don't think of sharks that big. So it's a, it's a pretty magical place. And speaking of magical places, you are dealing with a bit of a controversial issue coming up. And I noticed that on my birthday, December 17th, ooh, I got another year older and wiser. Uh, the California Coastal Commission approved a, um, a poison bait drop and, um, uh, I don't know that much about it, but I know that you have a mouse problem on the uh, the islands. The concept is to drop poison bait to get rid of the mice. And then the concern is what will happen to the other animals like the owls and gulls that might eat the mice or eat the bait and how that may impact the entire ecosystem. Can you tell us what's going on with that and how the sanctuary might be um, preparing their responses yeah, so the activities that are happening on the Farallon Islands to remove the mouse, that's through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, so the sanctuary isn't involved in that activity. We have sent a letter to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, alerting them that any activity that may affect the sanctuary or uh, a sanctuary resource would require um, consultation. It's it's a formal uh action that happens between um, federal agencies when um, a federal agency action might affect a sanctuary. We've also informed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service if they were to do any activities that discharged any material into the sanctuary, they would need a permit. Uh, so far within the documents they published, they have said they are not um, going to intentionally discharge anything within the sanctuary. So this is the sort of jurisdictional um, issues that we have with the ocean, 26 different federal agencies. So basically you're saying if 
one dead mouse floats off the island into the ocean, then it's no longer a fish and wildlife. It's a NOAA issue. The, the sanctuary uh, goes up to the mean high water. So our authorities are, you know, the, the wet part. And U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services authorities are the dry, um, the dry part, the land. And it, uh, natural resource management in the marine environment is really complicated because of the different layers of authorities um, that exist and the, the boundaries that are drawn. The sanctuary, um, we only have authority and jurisdiction over, over the wet part. Um, so that's, that's where we can intervene and um, become involved and ensure the protection of the, the wildlife and habitats um, that have put in our trustee. The amazing part is your high watermark is these narrow beaches on the islands where I've seen sea lions laying on top of elephant seals to get some room to lay up and then seagulls landing on them. Um, the density of life is, is pretty amazing. And again, you don't normally find that within a, a day sail of a major urban area. So how often do you get out there? I wish I got out to the Farallon Islands more than I actually do, um, especially lately with all these uh, pandemic restrictions. I try and get out there uh, at least once a year, um, if not on the islands, but you know, out around the islands. It it's incredibly um, uh, the the wildlife is incredibly abundant there. As you mentioned, it's animal on top of animal. Every nook and crevice is filled with some living organism. The seabirds have um, nests within, you know, the rocks. You, you have to walk on boardwalks so you don't crush a, a nest that's with, you know, in the ground. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's a ton of life on this, these little rocky outcrops that are so close to a major metropolitan area. Maria, I wanted to go back and ask you, we were talking about this, um, this poison bait drop, and I want everybody to understand how the mice got there, why the mice are a problem, and why they want to poison them. And so the mice um, got to the Farallon Islands uh, when humans first went out there um, on their ships with their... Uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not even sure if we know exactly the very first time they got on there, but when humans got onto the islands and brought goods, the mice were in um, uh, in the boxes of goods. They they end up getting on the island, and you know how mice populate very easily. They populated the island, and it, and their populations exploded because there were no uh, major predators for the mice. Um, the uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service over the past 20 years have noticed that the mice have altered the ecosystem on the Farallon Islands. Uh, they attract owls. Um, well, the owls normally come to the island as, as a stopover, but the, because there's food that wouldn't have normally been there, the owls stay past um, the time period they would normally stay on the island. Um, and they, they eat the mice. Uh, when the mice population starts to decrease, 
then there's a lack of food for the owls and they've they've overstayed so then they have to look for other food sources and they have been um, eating uh, the birds on the islands um, in particular a bird that's population is of concern that has been uh, looked at for listing as endangered so what is the endangered bird that people are concerned about or the fish and wildlife uh, people are concerned about the ashy storm petrel. Uh, a majority of their population lives only on the Farallon Islands. Uh, so that's why the Farallon Islands are so important to this seabird. Uh, and, the, and the mouse are not native. It's something that humans introduced. And unfortunately, um, this introduced species is disrupting the, the balance of the ecosystem on the islands. So the Farallons is also a great example of... Uh kind of humans learning and the natural resilience of the ocean environment. And it was, it was a depleted place at some point, wasn't it? It's really come back a lot. Yeah, it's amazing how um, nature is resilient and animals and wildlife are resilient. The Farallon Islands have had multiple incidences where their wildlife has, have been hunted to, uh, to, extirpation to basically removing almost all of that species from the islands. Uh, the Russian fur trade brought uh, Native Americans out to the islands and to kill northern fur seals for their pelts. And they were extirpated from the islands. There were none left. Uh, during the gold rush, because there was a shortage of chicken eggs, uh, people came out to the Farallon Islands and there were egg wars in which they would um, fight over collecting mer eggs to bring back to the city um, so that they would have eggs. Um, so just over and over again, the islands have experienced uh, the removal of their wildlife. Oh, northern fur seals in the logs, not northern fur seals, um, northern elephant seals within the logs of the Farallon Islands is recorded Oh, we found the last northern elephant seal and killed it. Oh, gosh. So that's in the logs. Uh, fortunately, we are so fortunate that these animals have been able to come back and recolonize the Farallon Islands. Uh, I was able to see that first northern fur seal pup born on the islands. It was my first time ever on the islands. And we were out counting um, seals and sea lions and birds. And we rounded a corner and all of a sudden this northern fur seal male, and they are scary, um, basically roars at us. And we look down and there's a baby fur seal pup that had just been born. Oh, beautiful. And when was this and how many are there today? Oh my, this was 20 years ago. And they had a northern fur seal pup had not been born on the islands for 170 years. And finally one came back. Um, they came back, they settled, they popped, and now we have over a hundred uh, fur seal pups born every year. So over the last 20 years, we have just seen their population come back. Wow. And the elephant seal population's gotten so massive that their pups are now being targeted by white sharks. Yeah, the northern elephant seal in which um, they thought they had killed the very last one on the Farallon Islands. Their numbers have also come back in our lifetimes. And now um, the island doesn't have any more room 
for northern um, elephant seals. Uh, there isn't space. They they are inhabiting every available space left on the island. And the common murs have returned as well. Uh, we don't have millions of common murs in the sanctuary, but we have hundreds of thousands of common murs um, back in the sanctuary. And it's because we have these places, um, these protected places for animals to feed, to live, uh, to raise their young. Yes, sanctuaries are natural laboratories. They provide us a, a window into what's happening in the ocean and along our coasts. We, uh, in 2008, we developed, or we started our Center for Collaboration on Ocean Climate Change, in which we initiated uh, research on what is happening in our marine environment. And we have been seeing changes um, over the last, you know, 15 years um, along our coast, visible changes. Uh, we're seeing uh, increased erosion for, for more storms, um, more intense storms, more extreme storms is causing increased uh, erosion along our coast. And it's also causing a, a change in uh, our rocky intertidal areas. We're seeing areas on the Farallon Islands where there isn't you know, humans aren't out there collecting uh, mussels. They're not trampling the intertidal. Yet we're seeing a decrease in the mussels um, along the ribbon of shoreline where the waves meet that rocky shore. Um, and that band of mussels is shrinking. And we believe it's because of the increased storminess. Those more extreme stores, storms are scouring uh, the coastline. We are seeing a shift in species. Uh, again, in my, my tenure here at the sanctuary, uh, when I started, bottlenose dolphins were not a species of the sanctuaries, but they are now. We now have bottlenose dolphins. They have come up. They've migrated north. They're warmer water species, but now they call the Farallons their home and are regularly sighted um, in the sanctuary. Uh, so we're seeing species changes. We're seeing new visitors. We've seen um, brown-footed boobies, a red-footed booby um, in the sanctuary. So these are tropical species never seen before. Uh, we're now seeing visiting us. Ooh, 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 I have a question. How do the dolphins get along with the sharks? <laughs> well, it depends on which dolphin you're talking about. Um, so our largest dolphin, the orcas, now they're our top predator, um, and when the orcas come, the white sharks leave. Um, and many of you who are listening have probably heard about the uh, very famous attack from a, a mother orca that um, was showing her calf how to kill a white shark and killed it right in front of a, a bunch of whale watchers. Uh, oh, wow. So yeah, when the orcas are in town, the white sharks leave. <laughs> Over your many years, 20 in this current position, and uh, many years prior to that, working with Cordell, what are some of the, maybe your one or two top challenging issues that you've been dealing with? Oh, um, well, the, the issue that causes the greatest impact at one point in time are oil spills. Uh, and when we have an oil spill, it's, it's devastating. It, it is like being in a war zone and it's emotionally taxing to go out to the beaches and see the beaches covered in oil. 
which has happened here, um, just this black slick, um, to see wildlife wash up onto the beaches dead, thousands of birds dead, collecting them. And then identify, you know, where there are live birds, getting them collected and cleaned so they can be re-released. Uh, so oil spills have been a, a huge challenge for us. And I have to say we've had some big successes. And I need to acknowledge that. And it's really because we've joined forces with our community members. And we monitor the beaches. And we're able to be able to identify when uh, there's oil on a beach immediately so we can be responsive. And I think it's also sent a message to uh, responsible parties, people who would cause an oiling event, that, that it's not acceptable, that there are people here that care, that are going to hold them accountable. And we have been able to get settlements um, to clean up the beaches, to bring back wildlife, to bring back those common MERS um, that have been affected. And so we have gone from having... Um, some of the, the beaches that have the highest recorded levels of oil to having beaches that are now the cleanest in the world. Oh, congratulations. That's great. And I think coal and oil were great energy systems for the 16th and 19th century. But I think people agree, certainly in California, it's time to move on to renewable energy. So what's along with oil spills, what would you say is your other most consistent or most troubling issue you've had to deal with over your long tenure? The most troubling issue that I have to deal with is climate change. And it's ironic that my issues are oil and climate change are the two um, hardest issues. Yeah, and they're linked. Um, and climate change is creating new situations that we never had before, um, that we're having to learn new ways of how to address and what and understand what can we do in the marine environment to combat climate change? What can we do in order to mitigate climate change, to, to remove carbon? How can we do that in the marine environment? And we can, which is exciting. We just recently published um, two uh, documents on blue carbon the role that the ocean and processes and habitats can play in removing carbon from the atmosphere. And if we can restore uh, blue carbon habitats, such as eelgrass, kelp, uh, wetlands, that can help take that carbon out of the atmosphere. And then when those um, plants and algae die, it gets sequestered or stored in our sediments. And that's why it's really important not to disturb ocean sediments, to leave them be, because that's where the most of our carbon is stored uh, on this planet, is in our sediments. And so we want to leave it there. And then that demonstrates the value of marine protected areas, is having these areas in the ocean in which these processes um, and these sediments are protected, where they're not uh, disturbed, where we can capture that carbon and keep it in the sediments for thousands of years. Maria, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like after 20 years, you're, you're not terribly bored with your job and even seem to like it a little. <laughs> you know what? I wish I was bored with my job. I wish that there was nothing else for us to work on. It was all thriving and no human intervention was needed. Um, 
but there is still so much to do. It keeps me busy and challenged and optimistic because we do have successes. The Northern fur seals coming back. Um, humpback whales. We have three humpback whale populations in the sanctuary. One of them's recovered. Another one's still endangered. So we still have more work to do. Uh, and that there's amazing people out there. Um, people that are very enthusiastic, passionate about the marine environment. People like uh, you, Vicki and David, that care and spread the word and, and really help us be as effective as we can be. Uh, it really is that, that, that saying, it takes a village. It does take a village. And, you know, these are global issues. And by us acting locally, we can make a dent. We can help solve some of these global issues. And Marie, I'm so happy that you are as enthusiastic now and positive as you were when I met you 20 plus some years ago. So um, that's just a testament to your energy and your successes and everybody recognizing that we really do have to take care of our ocean and increase the number of national marine sanctuaries and MPAs. So with that, I just want to thank you so much for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. David and I are delighted that you could be with us and congratulations on everything you're doing that's really successful. And we look forward to checking back in with you in a couple of years to see how things are going. I hope I have some great news to report that we have a lot more species coming back and some really healthy habitats. Perfect. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Cave May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.